Although vaccines and identity may seem unrelated, Bill Gates has spent the last few years funding research that can bring the two ideas together. Late last year, Gates once again turned to Robert Langer and his MIT colleagues to investigate new ways to permanently store and record the vaccination information of each individual. The result of their research was a new vaccine delivery method. They found that by using dissolvable microneedles that deliver patterns of near-infrared light-emitting microparticles to the skin, they could create particle patterns in the skin of vaccine recipients which are invisible to the eye but can be imaged using modified smartphones. Rice University describes the quantum dot tags left behind by the microneedles as something like a barcode tattoo. The microparticles that form the fluorescent quantum dot tags are delivered along with the vaccine, but they cannot be delivered by a traditional syringe. Instead, they must be delivered by a patch of microneedles made from a mixture of dissolvable sugar and a polymer called PVA, as well as the quantum dot dye in the vaccine. It should be no surprise, then, that big pharma vaccine manufacturers, in their scramble to produce the coronavirus vaccine that, Gates assures us, is necessary to go back to normal, have turned to a novel vaccine delivery method, a dissolvable microneedle array patch. So you're an anarchist? So I like to use the term voluntarist because uh, there are 18 million different varieties of anarchists. There's the anarcho-communist and anarcho-syndicalist and the mutualists and the anarcho-capitalists and every other flavor you can imagine. Primitives, primitivists and everything else. What is that? Uh, anarcho-primitivism is the uh, people who basically want to go back. In fact, you'll remember Tyler Durden in uh, uh, Fight Club was talking a little bit about that. You're stalking them through the damn canyon forest around the ruins of Rockefeller Center. You'll wear leather clothes that will last you the rest of your life. You'll climb the wrist thick cuts of vines that wrap the Sears Tower. And when you look down, you'll see tiny figures pounding corn, laying strips of venison in the empty carpool lane of some abandoned super. For me, I, that's kind of like, okay, so what do we do, what do I want to do once we achieve freedom? I, I'll choose one of the 18,000 flavors. But for me, the, the overarching umbrella for all of this is voluntarism, which is a pretty basic ethical principle that I think corresponds to what I perceive to be natural law, which is pretty basic uh, ideas. Basically, don't aggress upon peaceful people and don't... Uh, don't try to violate their, their body, their property, uh, against their will. I mean, it, it, things that most people, I think most reasonable people would agree with in principle, in general, and you can come up with a million different situations. Well, what if this happens? And what about this? And what about that? And that's the kind of thing where you have to work out in actuality. There's no way to have some magical principle that's going to suit every situation. But the voluntarist idea is once we have that established, then you go off and you choose your flavor of community that you want to form with pe like-minded people. And it's all about voluntary association. People are free to join. People are free to live, leave. No one has to abide by your particular vision of the world. And that, for me, is enough. I'm happy for there to be 
communists and socialists and capitalists and everything else, everyone who wants to try whatever way of living is fine. And sometimes I say, let the best idea win, as if it's a competition. But in fact, it's not a competition. I mean, who am I to say what's a win for someone else? I don't know. And you don't know what's a win for me. I get to choose what I want to do. You get to choose what you want to do. Let's go off and live. And uh, if, if uh, I see the way that you guys are living and I think that looks good for me, well, maybe I'll join you. And maybe vice versa. But that's, that's the ultimate umbrella for the vision that I have for anarchy. How do we get to that? How does that work? What does that look like? Yeah, in fact, as always, the devil's in the details. That's the vision, but moving from this current reality to that reality is extremely difficult because it's like if you're playing a game and you're playing a game of Monopoly or whatever it is, and halfway through the game, somebody's clearly winning, somebody's clearly losing, and then you say, okay, all right, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's change the rules, let's change the game. In fact, you know, play however you want. In fact, you can do anything you want with your money, and I'll do anything I want with my money, and there you go, happiness, right? But wait, no, now we're starting on an extremely unlevel playing field, and so of course this person is going to be able to function better, and this person is going to be at a lower rate. So in the same way, if we have governments and policies and rules and the, the system as it exists today with the corporations and all of this, and then suddenly you say, okay, now you're all free to do whatever you want. Well, obviously the people who are far ahead in the game are going to benefit. So there is a real problem of how you deal with that. To simply, okay, now everybody's free. If you simply declare that, there are going to be clear winners and losers based on nothing other than the starting point for that game. My vision for how it actually unfolds that the state and the corporatocracy that exists today gets I wouldn't say dismantled. In fact, it's very important what words we use here. If I say dismantled or overturned or blown up or whatever, those all come with their own ideas of how we get from here to there. But in fact, I would say replaced or, or overgrown or disposed of. And the, the vision or the model that I would have in mind for that is essentially the idea that technology tends to change the manner in which we relate to each other and the, the things that are possible for us to do. And so you have examples that we can see and we, we have seen in the past decade and will no doubt see much more of disruptive technologies coming along to completely obliterate old models of doing things. Uh, the obvious examples, the Airbnbs and the Ubers and the Lyfts and what have you that are destroying industries that have existed and functioned for a very long time under certain ideas and guidelines have almost completely been replaced now and there it wasn't like that it wasn't like exactly there was no there was no revolution people marching in the streets there was no there was no top-down control we're now going to make everyone use this form of getting around the the town no people just saw hey that's a good idea that's really easy and the the trick to it was replacing this heavily regulated and structured and licensed industry like the taxis which is just a ripoff in so many different ways for the taxi drivers as well as the, the passengers. It wasn't a good system. It was a million bucks to get a taxi license in New York. Exactly right. And why? Why? Why on earth? Oh, because it's heavily regulated. There's a sort of artificial monopoly placed on it. Someone came along and said, let's replace that artificial monopoly. We have the physical, we have the technology to make it as simple as pushing a little button and suddenly you've got someone who has a ride, sharing their ride. That's the idea. And people are going to quibble about Uber or Lyft or Airbnb or the specific examples of this, but 
that's, that's forest for the trees kind of stuff. No, the, the bigger picture here is technology comes along and completely overturns the, the ways that people interact with each other. It's the technology that's sort of driving that. Or at least, no, no, I wouldn't say the technology is driving that. I'd say we human beings want connection with other people. We want to facilitate those connections in the easiest way possible. In times past, it was difficult if all you have is a physical phone. You got to phone the taxi and, and well, who am I going to phone for a ride? I don't know anyone in this town. Uh, well, there's a taxi company. That's the way you would do it. But now the technology has made those individual connections easier. So that's what we do because we're human beings and we want that connection. And as that progresses, it will overturn everything. I mean, every industry is open to that form of revolution, if you want to call it that. And that's, that's the way I envision this going, not political action, voting for someone who, into office who's going to change the system or something like that. It's not top down, it's bottom up. So is democracy as an organizing principle and a technology, is it, is it a dead man walking? And is that what you're seeing the future? And is the future going to be real freedom or is it going to be perpetual tyranny or more tyranny? That's the million dollar question. That's the trillion dollar. That's the game for all the marbles. Because you're exactly right. With this technological development, which I say is the... It's a path, race right now. Exactly right, yeah. Because technology, of course as we've all heard, double-edged sword. It can be used to clamp down as much as it can be used to release. Well, with cryptocurrency, you could, it's either economic freedom or complete economic tyranny because they can track every single penny that you spend now. Yeah, and in fact, that's something that I've talked about before. Uh, I've talked about the Bitcoin PSYOP. Yes, the blockchain is truly revolutionary. Yes, Bitcoin is Tulip Mania 2.0. Yes, Cryptocurrency is a nail in the coffin of the bankster parasites. Yes, digital currency is a tool of the totalitarian tyrants. No, these statements are not contradictory. But don't worry if you think they are. You're just a victim of the Bitcoin PSYOP. Getting people to believe that Bitcoin is blockchain, blockchain is Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, blockchain, digital currency, all these things are the same thing. And for the non-technological, non-specialists, they sound like the same thing. But they're very different things with different meanings. And if we don't know those meanings, we can be tricked into thinking this national digital currency that's going to be issued by whatever government with directly tied to your social insurance number and your social credit score and everything else. Oh, that's, I guess that's Bitcoin. I guess that's cryptocurrency. But it isn't, of course. It could easily, easily happen. Right. But there is a decentralized path that we could be following if people knew about the existence of that path. Unfortunately, people are being deliberately, I think, precluded from that, that knowledge of what it is they should be striving for. And without the conscious aspect of this, without people knowing what they are doing and why they're doing it, then of course, people who have a vested interest in controlling systems like this will make sure that that's the easiest way to go. The would-be controllers of society in various forms, economic and financial and military and otherwise, of course, understand they're they're not stupid they understand where things are trending economically and socially and otherwise and are preparing for it a prime example of that after the 08 collapse you have the the bank for international settlement working through some of its working groups creating the white papers that are then implemented in every member country around the world for bail-in laws and other such things that, that will ultimately weave the banking system into an international uh, conglomerate even more so than it is today 
piece by piece behind the scenes, no one's even looking at it, so that it's all, all the mechanisms are in place for the next collapse, which the BIS, the IMF, every other major institution is already predicting. They know that it's going to happen. Their white papers tell them it's going to happen. And now they're ready for it. And when it happens and the crisis hits, when people are in crisis mode, they're panicking. They don't know what to do. What will happen? Hopefully there will be a government savior or an international body that will come in to save them. And that's when you can implement the digital national currency or whatever final nail in the coffin of human freedom you want. People naturally sort of wanting connection with each other in the easiest way possible, uh, and that being facilitated by technology, that's just an innate human drive, I, I believe. But, I, again, if we don't have a conscious model for what we are doing and why we are doing it, then the, the simulacrum, to use a fancy philosophical term, the, uh, the, the, the sort of light version of that convenience that's offered by technology will be offered to us in a convenient package and form that will be easy to adopt and easy to go along with and easily controlled. If we have a conscious and true understanding of what it is we're doing and why we are doing it, then we will have the motive or we'll have at least the understanding of why we might need to take a harder path, a path that is not going to necessarily lead to sunshine and rainbows and happiness and so, so easy to get on the system. No, it's going to take a lot of work and effort, but why put in the work? You cannot justify it unless you have a conscious understanding of that. So fundamentally, the revolution is a revolution of consciousness. It comes down to that. This is about, uh, I won't even say the, uh, the evolution, the maturation of humanity. Uh, we are living as children, being told what to do by mummy or daddy government. You have the mummy government that will come and take care of you and wipe your nose and feed you and make sure you're okay and daddy government who will deliver punishment and justice. And, and, and keep you safe. And keep you safe, of course, from the bad men. Um, but if we do not grow out of that childhood, youthful innocence into maturation, taking responsibility for ourselves, then we are actually moving to the this, this stage at which it is becoming technologically feasible to really genetically, at this point, genetically engineer a subspecies. 2030 to 2035, ReBrain. The colossal project of brain reverse engineering is implemented. World science comes very close to understanding the principles of consciousness. 2035, the first successful attempt to transfer one's personality to an alternative carrier. The epoch of cybernetic immortality begins. 2040 to 2050, bodies made of nanorobots that can take any shape arise alongside hologram bodies. 2045 to 2050, drastic changes in social structure and in scientific and technological development. All the prerequisites for space expansion are established. For the man of the future, war and violence are unacceptable. The main priority of his development is spiritual self-improvement. A new era dawns. The era of neo-humanity. Very, very worrying stuff indeed, especially worrying that so many people will embrace this without thinking at all about who is directing this transformation of humanity itself and to what end. Humanity is at the point where we are facing a bifurcation. And 
uh, is going to be sold and packaged as transhumanism and other great things. You don't want the brain chip? It will be great for everyone, um, as all such things always are. But literally, the technologies that exist today are going to be the types of technologies that would have been literally unimaginable to any dictator in society, but perfectly capable of making humanity into a subservient species that will be uh, more prone to being able to be controlled. The types of experiments that were being done 50 years ago uh, to literally control wild animals like bulls with in, uh, devices implanted in their brain that could stop them dead in their tracks with a single click of a button. Electronic mind control research is not new. A scientific milestone in this area came in the 1960s when Dr. Jose Delgado demonstrated remote control over a charging bull. By connecting a radio antenna to electrodes inserted into the bull's brain, Delgado proved that the animal's aggressive impulses could be thwarted by electronically manipulating the bull's muscle reflexes. Do you realize the fantastic possibilities if from the outside we could modify the inside? Could we give messages to the inside? But the beauty is that now we are not using electrodes. In recent years, Delgado has shown that the behavior of monkeys can be altered using low-power pulsating magnetic fields. But in these experiments, there were no antenna implants. Any function in the brain, emotions, intellect, personality, well, could be perhaps modified by this non-invasive technology. Delgado's research has so far been limited to animals. But in the Soviet Union, a radio frequency, or RF device, has been used for over 30 years to manipulate the moods of mental patients. I mean, these types of technologies have been worked on for a very long time at this point, and always, of course, under the cover of secrecy, never revealed to the public until decades after they've taken place. So one can imagine that the, te the technology that actually exists now is going to be light years ahead of what we've seen. What kind of people want to do that kind of stuff to other human beings? Uh, sadistic people, of course, uh, sociopaths of various kinds. Uh, there, there is a lot of academic debate about psychopathy, sociopathy, how to delineate and categorize these different types. Um, but one rubric that has been developed is that psychopaths are very small, maybe one or two percent of the population. People who literally have their brains wired differently, cannot experience the types of emotions, sympathy, etc., that we naturally feel as human beings. And the worst part is that in their image, they can create sociopaths who are not born with that same uh, biochemical brain chemistry as the psychopaths, but will emulate the psychopathic nature in a system that's been designed, essentially, to be psychopathic. And we see examples of that. Um, some of the people who have talked about this include the famed Stanford psychologist, uh, Philip Lombardo, who did the original Stanford prison experiment, but he has uh, talked about what he calls the Lucifer effect, which is how to essentially engineer people into becoming, acting as if they are psychopaths, even if they aren't necessarily. And he points to the example of Abu Ghraib in Iraq, the detention center, where, of course, despicable, inhuman treatment of prisoners took place by ordinary guards who were coming from Idaho and Nebraska and whatever else. Did these average sort of people uh, from the Midwest end up in Iraq and suddenly, yes, these sadistic killers finally had a playground to work in? Or was the environment molding them into that? And if that is possible, if you can take people who would not necessarily uh, normally manifest those behaviors 
in an average environment and make them into that in a, in a specialized environment, well, what about the environment we're being placed into in a society generally? Um, that's the type of social engineering that happens when you are psychopathic and when you want to engineer a society in a certain way. It's fundamentally about ideology. And I think opposed to the idea of freedom that I would like to see manifest in the world are the people who want control. And I think one of the, the, the real ideologies that they cling to, that is almost a religion for them, is eugenics. It was developed in the late 19th century. It was, the term was coined by Francis Galton, who of course was a first cousin of Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin Galton being a mixture of both their lines because they interbred their Darwin and Galton and Wedgwood families all interbred to become this kind of mix that's actually called the Darwoods um, because they interbred with each other so much because they believed they were going to create a superhuman race. Are they around today? Uh, of course, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, if you trace the lineage of the eugenics idea and the eugenics society and follow it down, a surprising number of directors of various eugenic societies in Britain, even in America, had some sort of familial relation to the Darwins, the Wedgwoods, the Huxleys, uh, the, uh, the Galtons. These are family lines in a sense. And that, that makes sense because of course their main idea is certain families have certain genes that just make them better able uh, to rule over other people, essentially. This isn't some conspiracy. It is out in the open. They have written about this extensively for a century now. And you can look at the history of the development of this eugenics idea and its exceptional popularity. It's difficult in 2020 to understand how popular an ideology this was, but it was the global warming rock star super science of its time. Everyone who was anyone had to pay lip service to it at least, if not fervently believe that we have to engineer a better human species through promoting the best people having more children and, and also making sure that bad people don't have children. The Institute of Criminology in New York was administered by Rockefeller's own Bureau of Social Hygiene and staffed by workers trained at the Eugenics Record Office. Fueled by the support of America's rich and powerful, the field of eugenics transformed from the quaint hobby horse of a few mad scientists into the social cause of an entire generation. Economists, politicians, authors, activists. By the 1920s, everyone who was anyone was extolling the need to eradicate the germplasm of the lower stock. Marie Stopes, the celebrated family planning pioneer who founded Britain's first birth control clinic in North London in 1921, railed against hordes of defectives calling for the compulsory sterilization of those she deemed unfit for parenthood. Tommy Douglas, now venerated as a hero in Canada for his role in founding the nation's healthcare system, submitted a master's thesis to McMaster University advocating that subnormals, defectives, and morons like those with low IQ or physical abnormalities be isolated on a state farm or in a colony where decisions could be made for them by a competent supervisor and called on the government to certify mental and physical fitness to stop the unfit from breeding. John Maynard Keynes, the economist who gave us the Keynesian economic school that is still popular among central planners today, was himself president of the British Eugenics Society from 1937 to 1944. Alexander Graham Bell is still revered as the inventor of the telephone, but was in fact an early supporter of Charles Davenport and a founding member of the Eugenic Records Office Board of Scientific Directors. 
He openly campaigned for the eradication of the deaf race by governments intervening to stop deaf people from marrying. Nobel Prize winning playwright and author George Bernard Shaw advocated for the creation of a government panel that would require everyone to justify their existence before it. If they failed to do so, Shaw thought those people should be killed by the state. What is the connection with eugenics and um, abortion? Is there a connection there? There, there is, actually, because uh, Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood, was an explicit, on-the-record, vocal and very active eugenicist. The most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it, end quote. And just in case there is any confusion about what the driving agenda and ideology behind the American Birth Control League and Planned Parenthood really was, she wrote at the, about this in great length in various essays and articles and in the Birth Control League uh, official pu pu publication, where she wrote things like, quote, the campaign for birth control is not merely of eugenic value, but is practically identical with the final aim of eugenics. And, quote, eugenics is the most adequate and thorough avenue to the solution of racial, political, and social problems, end quote. Of course, poor people, and yeah, it just so happened that a lot of these poor people were black, but um, she spoke at Klan rallies and things like this. But now, of course, we give the Margaret Sanger Award to people like Hillary Clinton, who fight for women's rights by promoting abortion and helping Planned Parenthood. I have to tell you that um, it was a great privilege when I was told that I would receive this award. Uh, I admire Margaret Sanger enormously. Her courage, her tenacity, her vision. Thanks uh, to all of you uh, at Planned Parenthood uh, for all the work that you are doing for women all across the country and for families all across the country and for men who are, have enough sense to realize you're helping them all across the country. <laughs> One issue that really grabbed me as, as urgent uh, was, were issues related to population, uh, reproductive health. But did you come to reproductive issues as an intellectual? When I was growing up, my parents were always involved in various uh, uh, volunteer things. My dad was uh, head of Planned Parenthood. What is the state? Is the state like this evil entity with, that just bubbles up the worst people in society because it's based on extortion and violence? Or is it just a manifestation of our fear coming from hunter-gatherer days where we didn't, you know, if a tribe, back in the day, if a tribe came and took your tribe and you lost, everybody was getting killed and all the women were getting raped. So people, that fear is passed down. It's in our, it's in our being. So that's, is that what it is? It just comes from that? Or do you think there's actually people that are organizing this? Like, what's your take on all this? I think the state is essentially a protection racket. It is a mafia. It is a gang of thugs. But it has, uh, it is much worse than a gang of thugs. Because if there was a mafia, a protection racket, that moved into town and said, we're taking over this town and we're going to govern it and we're, we'll tell you what to do. We'll take a little bit of your business. Don't worry, we'll give things back and we'll make sure everything's taken care of. At least under that uh, structure, people would know, okay, it's a gang of thugs and we're their helpless victims. But they'd know deep down that it wasn't right. 
there wasn't any sort of God-given right that these people had to rule over them. It's just that these are the biggest, the gang of thugs with the biggest guns, so they're going to win the fight. Okay, well, we can resist, probably die, or we can go along to get along. Um, but in their heads, they would not be enslaved to this gang of thugs. However, the state is a gang of thugs writ large with fancy titles, badges, hats, and pieces of paper that tell people that, no, we have the right to govern you. And of course, that has functioned in different ways in different historical eras, but in our current era, in the modern, developed, Western liberal democracies, or whatever they're calling them this week, it is uh, essentially the idea, we are the government, because we sign into it, we give our consent, we participate in the process, we elect representatives, maybe your representative you wanted gets in, maybe he doesn't, but anyway, you've consented to the system, so you are now being subject to those rules, and people are enslaved in their minds to this idea, the idea of the state. And the biggest secret about it is that the state doesn't really exist. There is no actual identifiable thing in nature called government. There are only people, there are only individuals who may assume certain offices and wear certain costumes, but the entire mechanism by which they rule over other people is all in the mind. So it's, it's a manifestation of human fear. It's, uh, it's, I don't know if it's a manifestation of human fear, but it is a result of human fear and, uh, and isn't that the same thing? Well, no, because there is the predatory psychopathic class, whatever you want to identify them as, that take advantage of that fear by putting in the state as the solution to it. But I don't think it... See, if you say it is the manifestation of that fear, you, you would say that this is the logical and only possibility for... I mean, it is the development of that fear. But it isn't. It's the way that fear is dealt with by a predatory class that's preying on another class. This isn't about money, because once you realize about how the money is created, and that it is created out of nothing as debt that is owed back to the banks that are given the right to create it by this thing called the government, you realize that, no, of course, they don't care about money per se. They can print it out of nothing as they need. So it's power. It's power. Money is nothing but the point system by which you keep track of how much power you have. Am I pessimistic or optimistic about where we go from here? That's right. And that is an exceptionally good question. I think I'm particularly motivated because I would say throughout history, there have been times of dark ages and enlightenments broadly defined. Um, times where people are oppressed under an, a, a boot with an iron, iron fist. But then there's a of a counteraction and there is some sort of war. The, the war of good versus evil, however it's portrayed in a lot of literature. Um, and, and that is, perhaps that is the way that human society is supposed to function, that there will always, there will always be a struggle and something like that. But, as I say, the technology for the complete crackdown, I, I would say as long as the human spirit exists, there will always be hope. But how long will a human spirit exist if we genetically alter the species itself, if we're controlling people through smart technologies that they don't understand, artificial intelligence? Uh, these types of things can truly change the, the narrative of human history. And it is coming into view in the next generation or two. That's what I'm concerned about, which is why we do not have forever to, to really have this conversation. 
it is going to be decided in the next couple of generations. And that's why I'm concerned. The thing that I've always done with my work is to try to provide people source documents. I've never saw it as my duty to convince anybody of anything. I'm not trying to, oh, please believe what I believe. I am simply putting information in front of people and certainly I will deliver my opinion on it and my interpretation of it, but I will always link people back to the source documents that I'm talking about and I'll direct them to information that I'd say 99 times out of 100 they didn't know specifically existed, whether it's the next million years reference or anything else that I'm talking about. People generally don't know about these specific pieces of evidence that at the very least might get their mind generated thinking about it and hopefully at some point once they've reflected on it, they will start researching it and they may come to very different conclusions than me. That's fine. I don't, I don't mind that. I, I'm certainly not right about everything. I'm a human being. I'm fallible. I make mistakes. But I just want people to start looking at certain things that I think are important. And if that gets me labeled a conspiracy theorist, so be it. Um, people who can't snap out of that conditioning to hear that word and to realize that they are being programmed and controlled to once you hear that word, you will not listen to any reason, evidence, or anything else. If people have been that far steeped into the conditioning and programming, then perhaps there's no help for them at this point. Have you been screwed with by YouTube at all? Uh, certainly, yes. Uh, I have a very specific and clear example because people can talk till they're blue in the face about I'm being shadow banned here and there, but I have a very specific example of that. Uh, in 2014, I created a documentary about the Federal Reserve called Century of Enslavement, the History of the Federal Reserve. Now, for... Where can I see that? On YouTube. Okay. But if you can find it. Uh, for a number of years, it was the number one search result when you typed Federal Reserve into the YouTube search bar. So anyone who was straying onto YouTube to look at information about the Federal Reserve was very likely to encounter my documentary. In 2000. 17 or 2018, uh, Chris Hayes of MSNBC got on Twitter and said, here's an example of YouTube's toxic algorithm. Imagine you're a high school student and you're, you have an assignment to research the Federal Reserve. You type Federal Reserve into YouTube and you get this. And he shows the title screen of my documentary. The very next day you type Federal Reserve into the YouTube search bar you do not see my documentary anywhere. It is completely gone. And that was literally overnight. Uh, several months later, the YouTube whistleblower, uh, Zach Voorhees, came out with documentation to prove that, in fact, yes, the term Federal Reserve was put on a search blacklist as a result of Chris Hayes' tweet. So, I have, yes, I am definitely being screwed with by YouTube. Wow. Why, why do they do that? Uh, very simple. Uh, in fact, it makes even more sense to me now because I, I don't I use physical computers to do my computing because that's that, that seems to make more sense to me. I want control over my instruments, but we're being led into a world where less and less we have control over physical things that we're searching and looking for online. More and more, we have essentially vending machines, smart devices that just tell us what to do and. And it finally clicked on with me now that I know. Oh, smart TVs. People are using. TV to watch YouTube. And of course, you're not searching and endlessly and refining search results. You're just typing in some words and you get a few. That's a good point, actually. So you type Federal Reserve. They do not want that documentary being there. They do not want that. They want CNN, bland, mainstream uh, information. And that's why they are working very hard. And 
extend that out a little bit. Right now, at least we still have physical devices that you might be typing words into. In the future, it will be hearables and wearables where you're just saying, Alexa, tell me about the Federal Reserve. It will give you precisely one answer to that, and it will not be the answer that I or other people would be giving. I believe in human freedom. I believe in human prosperity. I believe most people are not psychopaths and that we have a way out of this. We just have to know what it is we're fight fighting for and why we are fighting for it. <laughs>